Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's session is entitled Understanding and Managing Neuropathic Pain. My name is Roberta Pesce, and I am the Research and Project Manager at the Transverse Myelitis Association. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. We're very pleased to welcome Samuel Huge from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas to host our podcast today. Sam is a research coordinator at UT Southwestern and is a certified clinical research professional through the Society of Clinical Research Associates. Sam manages the UT Southwestern Neurosciences Biorepository and focuses his attention on rare neurologic conditions. He coordinates multiple studies on demyelinating diseases in adult and pediatric populations. Thank you, Sam, on behalf of the TMA. Before we begin, a few housekeeping pieces. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website at myelitis.org. And during the call, if you have any additional questions, please send them to us via our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myelitis. Great. Thanks, Roberta. I'm honored to introduce our guest today, Dr. Scott Newsom with the Johns Hopkins Multiple Sclerosis and Transverse Myelitis Center specializes in the care of patients with neuroimmunological and neuroinflammatory disorders of the central nervous system. He has special interest in evaluating and treating patients with multiple sclerosis, transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, and stiff person syndrome. Dr. Alan DeSena is currently the TMA James T. Lubin Fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas, pursuing a career in clinical care and research in rare neuroimmune diseases. He is the first pediatric neurology fellow to study this rare spectrum of neuroimmunological disorders with a particular focus on transverse myelitis. Later this summer, Dr. DeSena will be establishing a neuroimmunology center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you, Dr. DeSena and Dr. Newsom, for joining us today. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us and sending us your questions as well. Uh, to start us off, Dr. Newsom, could you please give us an overview of what neuropathic pain is, how it differs from other kinds of pain, and what causes it in NMO, TM, and ADEM? Absolutely, and thank you for inviting uh, us here today. Uh, in general, uh, we know pain is very complex and can occur from a variety of mechanisms. Neuropathic pain being one of the most common forms of pain, uh, it can affect any parts of the body. We would consider neuropathic pain to fall under the umbrella of uh, chronic pain syndrome, in which can result from conditions that affect the central nervous system, like transverse myelitis, or in conditions that affect the peripheral nervous system, like diabetes or uh, when individuals get chemotherapy. So with respect to transverse myelitis or other central nervous system uh, disorders, neuropathic pain usually occurs when the dorsal horn of the spinal cord is involved. Uh, this is in contrast to uh, nociceptive pain, which is typically described as dull or achy sensation from specific damage to special uh, nerve endings and not act the actual nerves or spinal cord itself. Uh, neuropathic pain, which many of our uh, listeners know uh, well, come in many different flavors. Uh, it's described as intense shooting or stabbing pain. Uh, some will, de will describe it as a burning sensation or an electric shock-like sensation. 
it oftentimes is worse at night and unfortunately does not respond very well to over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen or Tylenol. Uh, nociceptive pain, uh, in contrast, uh, since that is a common pain syndrome, does appear to respond uh, favorably to some of these over-the-counter medications, uh, like we see with arthritis or if you sprain your ankle. Um, and neuropathic pain in general, uh, at least in my experience, often needs multiple interventions uh, to help with the discomfort, and that includes non-pharmacological therapies as well. Um, transverse myelitis specifically, uh, we see more than 50% of patients experience some form of chronic pain, and a large part of that is the neuropathic pain that sets in after the TM. Uh, there have been a few studies that have shown the neuropathic pain discomfort level being more intense actually in conditions that may cause more severe spinal cord attacks, uh, for example, neuromyelitis optica. And that sets the stage uh, for intractable pain long-term. Um, and that goes back to what I mentioned already about the uh, dorsal horn of the spinal cord being involved. And so if you have more of that involved, that uh, means that more neuropathic pain could occur from that. That's sort of a broad, broad strokes of neuropathic pain. Great, thank you for that, Dr. Newsom. Um, there were a number of questions asked by uh, uh, the members of the TMA um, about different causes of pain, more specifically. So first, uh, to Dr. DeSena, is there a seasonal or environmental component or time of day that affects neuropathic pain? And are there any reasons why pain increases or why we have these good or bad days? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, to Dr. Newsom's point is that oftentimes, you know, uh, we hear that uh, the pain will be worse um, at the end of the day or um, uh, at night specifically. Uh, oftentimes there are patients that have a lot of difficulty falling asleep because of uh, various types of pain. Uh, sometimes I will hear uh, quite frequently that uh, people have a, an extraordinary amount of hypersensitivity to what would be normally considered benign uh, stimuli, whereas like some people would say, I cannot stand to have the sheets touch certain parts of my legs. Uh, it causes an extraordinary amount of pain, whereas early in the day, uh, you know, wearing regular clothes does not seem to bother me. Um, it just ignites a kind of a flurry of uh, uh, uncomfortable sensations in their legs. Oftentimes it's their legs, that's why I mentioned that. Uh, but of course it can occur in the upper extremities too, depending on um, what kind of type of syndrome or where your previous injury had been. Um, I think that that's a, it's the overall question of why pain increases, good days, bad days, et cetera, is extraordinarily difficult to answer just because of uh, the wide variability amongst the uh, medical situations across patients. I will say from a broad standpoint that uh, in general certain things like uh, fatigue, uh, stressors, uh, either in your personal life, at work, at home, etc. cetera, uh, anything that would cause uh, you to have an exacerbation of other medical problems, for example, can uh, potentially worsen the pain. Uh, we particularly focus on, uh, in our initial assessment, and this is, we focus on a lot of things, of course, but in one of our initial assessments, we tend to really focus on sleep a lot. Um, just because of uh, the extraordinary effects that an impairment of sleep can have 
on not only your pain but also your energy level, et cetera, throughout the day. And a lot of these uh, er uh, areas in which uh, uh, patients have had TM or conditions such as NMO that have had significant impairment, um, they'll, they'll note that when their uh, sleep is improved, uh, other areas uh, of their life will be improved, the energy level and sometimes their pain as well. That being said, uh, it's kind of a chicken or the egg issue, uh, especially if you're having a lot of pain at night as you're trying to fall asleep. You know, I, if I can get my pain under control, then I can sleep. Or, uh, and so, uh, as Dr. Newsom says, that uh, oftentimes we'll have to um, uh, incorporate some pharmacologic therapy and, as he, to his uh, excellent point, some non-pharmacologic measures to help um, reduce the amount of pain um, as well. Um, in general, I think that's probably the best uh, overview I can uh, I can give in terms of, um, like as uh, Dr. Newsom says, painting broad strokes about, you know, how we approach the pain is that we really do try to make sure that as we're managing the pain, and we can try many things, of course, um, but we also are getting a handle on um, not only the, uh, the medical issues, but also trying to help the individual, whoever it may be, whether it be a young child or a young adult, um, getting helping them get a handle on other areas in their life uh, with their functioning, et cetera. And so they, uh, because, as I said, oftentimes the pain will be exacerbated uh, concurrently along with other things. That's probably the best overview I can give. Thank you, Dr. DeSena. That kind of leads us into a couple questions that were asked out of California um, pertaining to increases uh, in pain, whether it be Lermite sign or uh, uh, banding and numbness, uh, where there's concern about um, is this something uh, that is a sign of another flare-up or is this something um, that's uh, uh, not as concerning? Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll jump right in with that. Um, so it, it's quite difficult. Uh, so with patients that have had transverse myelitis, um, as I'm sure a lot of all the, a lot of these patients are, are aware, is that transverse myelitis uh, by itself can be a um, can be its own diagnosis, and in that sense, meaning it's a one-time event that happens called idiopathic transverse myelitis. And um, but the the other concern is that it was a syndrome that is, uh, or a symptom that was part of another, uh, a finding that was part of another syndrome, such as neuromyelitis optica, uh, also MS sometimes as well. And, um, uh, and so this is part of the reason why, uh, A, we follow along with a lot of these patients in clinic to kind of ensure that uh, whether this is or is not part of a larger event or a larger syndrome such that something that would require chronic therapy in order to prevent relapses. Uh, in terms of patients that have had uh, what we think is idiopathic transverse myelitis, it can be quite difficult to determine um, as they move forward at times if they are or they are not having a new flare-up. Uh, there are certain, uh, because when we say flare-up, when you talk to neurologists that, that see these kinds of things, when, when someone says flare-up to me, I uh, my thought process is that it's a it's a new it's a new uh, event uh, in and of itself that may have similar symptoms but is 
a technically new event. Whereas from a general term, flare-up can uh, can just re refer to just a flare-up of old symptoms. Uh, and in that respect, um, we would not consider it a potentially new event, uh, but, but just a worsening of old, a re-worsening of old symptoms. We tend to get more concerned uh, if there are, even if we incorporate some of the old symptoms, if there are clearly new symptoms that are, the person is having that they've never ever had before. Um, and in addition, uh, we tend to get more concerned about this being a new event um, if uh, the symptoms are clearly persistent, lasting days at a time without remitting. Um, we tend to get less concerned about this being a, uh, evidence of clearly new disease activity uh, if the symptoms get worse, maybe last a few hours, maybe are associated with some stressors, problems at home, not feeling well, illness, et cetera, all of which can exacerbate old symptoms, um, and or if it's the symptoms are clearly kind of oscillating a lot or lasting less than a day or so. Um, from that standpoint, um, and some people are probably maybe listening to this and it's like, well, I'm kind of on the fence with that. Maybe I'm having something that may or may not be a flare. Uh, if there is a concern that there is a new flare-up that might be indicative of new, new disease activity, that would be something that would require a discussion with your neurologist, potentially imaging, um, and some other investigations as well. Yeah, if right. I could add to that, I, I think that was fantastic, uh, Dr. Tisena. I what I will tell uh, my patients in clinic, new end uh, follow-ups, is the 24-hour rule, which can sometimes help uh, sort out uh, in, in everyone's mind what should be concerning, what should be alarming, and what uh, may not be so, uh, so important to, to get worked up over. And um, so if there is any new or worsening baseline neurological symptom, that persist in a constant fashion for more than 24 hours, um, regardless of the symptom, and then that's something that I would recommend um, the listeners to reach out to their, uh, their neurologist um, because, like Dr. DeSena had mentioned, if there is concern that there's new uh, inflammation or a relapse or a new attack, um, then MRI is often uh, the, the tool uh, to investigate that. And for for many people, um, up front, we don't know whether their transverse myelitis or their central nervous system attack is just a one-time event and, you know, the person will go on and not have any further problems, or is this part of a relapsing condition that will need, you know, a long-term maintenance therapy. And, you know, a second attack or a new lesion on MRI would tip the scale towards that this is likely a relapsing condition uh, that would need chronic therapy outside of the symptomatic therapy. So uh, just to, uh, to separate out, when we talk about chronic maintenance therapy, um, we're talking about the medications um, that change the way the immune system is behaving to prevent further neurological attacks or episodes. Those are much different uh, medicines than the ones that we use for, example, treating pain, treating uh, bladder dysfunction, um, but I think Dr. Tassan did a great job at answering that question. Um, we have a question coming from Scotland, actually from a 10-year-old, so this might be a good question for the pediatrician on the call, um, that has had TM uh, after two years, and the question is, why do I have pain in my chest and stomach area when I do too much or if I get hot in PE? 
and is there anything I can do about it? So any um, uh, whenever any of the patients have had TM uh, to come in and they have specifically symptoms that have uh, they get worse with any kind of exertion or getting extremely warm, uh, then uh, we tend to put in the category that this is with uh, a phenomenon where uh, in which patients um, have a reworsening of symptoms likely from their initial TM episode that are transiently, when I say transiently, I mean briefly worsening um, uh, due to uh, subtle changes in your body temperature can affect the rate of the nerve conduction. And in patients that have had uh, transverse myelitis where in at least uh, many, if not most, we feel that there was myelin involvement in which the myelin was affected, uh, it changes the rate of conduction in which patients have had problems with their myelin as in damage to it from TM, uh, that nerve conduction just slows just a little bit and some old symptoms can re-flare up. Uh, in these kinds of situations, this is actually something uh, very common in NMS patients, and it's called Udolph's phenomenon, named, by, uh, named after the gentleman uh, who initially described, um, that, um, that uh, in these situations, there is no new damage occurring. It's related often to body temperature. Uh, oftentimes, people will say it's from them getting too hot, or from exertion because their body temperature will elevate very uh, subtly but briefly when they exert themselves. Sometimes an infection also, like a, a flu-like illness, can, can bring, out, bring this out as well. And a lot of people worry that there's new damage occurring. Uh, uh, in general, uh, it's fairly well known that there's not really any new damage occurring. It's just a re-emerging of these old symptoms. We tend to stress in a lot of patients that have had symptoms with that are related to exertion or from being hot, especially right now I'm in Dallas where it can be quite warm in the summer, that uh, we tend to stress a lot to have for the patients to have a lot of cooling mechanisms in place. And so there's a lot of cooling packs people can get. There are uh, There's cooling vests that certain people can get, although those tend to be quite clunky and sometimes they're a little bit cumbersome. Uh, just having just ice-cold beverages in a hand, because uh, when you drink them in, you're bring, putting cool fluids in your body and that can cool you from the inside out. And um, but, in, but maybe just taking a break and just allow yourself to cool down. If it's something that which not uh, which can be uncomfortable, especially if it is significant pain and it's happening when you're when uh, you're exerting yourself, etc. But if it's if it's subsiding fairly quickly after you cool yourself down or take a break then we tend to not be too, too worried about it in terms of uh, considering putting you on uh, regular, daily, uh, regular medication because a lot of the times our medications that we have for pain are something that patients have to be on every day. It really depends on the individual patient uh, in terms of how intrusive the symptom is and how much it's affecting their ability to function. Uh, certainly there's things we can consider and can try, um, and, uh, but in terms of if, when it's particularly or specifically the heat or exertion, it's oftentimes what we feel that it is. Um, and like I said, I just want to stress again that in these situations, there's no new damage occurring. Uh, back to Dr. Newsom's point about symptoms that flare up and that last longer than 24 hours are clearly more concerning. Um, and um, uh, uh, to, to that specific question, I would say that in terms of if there's something needs to be something to do about it, it really depends on 
how uncomfortable it is, how long it's lasting, and how much is really affecting your ability to function. Out of Colorado, we have a question. Is there a known or anecdotal relationship between exercise and increased pain, or is it possible to decrease pain with exercise? So I'll, I'll uh, try to answer that. It's a, it's a complicated question. Um, the nervous system is, is quite complex, and uh, the fibers and the tracks uh, that go from brain to, to limbs uh, communicate throughout. And so if you have uh, damage in one region, it can affect uh, other regions, and uh, you can have many different symptoms come uh, from one one region being damaged. And so exercise in general, it's interesting. If you look at, at um, exercise over time and what was told many years ago to uh, patients who had neurological illnesses, especially those who had relapsing conditions like multiple sclerosis, it was uh, told many years ago that you shouldn't exercise because that will actually uh, bring on a relapse or cause damage. And now moving into uh, this century, we're finding that exercise uh, uh, transiently certainly can provoke old symptoms. And uh, to Dr. DeSena's uh, points, it seems to be tightly correlated to core body temperature increasing just a fraction, and that's, that's where some of the, the symptoms will be brought out or amplified, including pain. Um, Long-term, though, exercise does seem to send positive feedback to the central nervous system, and um, we're getting a little bit smarter in how we can evaluate people, um, and there are sophisticated tests um, that are being looked at in, in the research realm to try to better understand, uh, you know, if you exercise, uh, does it help decrease inflammation, does it help improve um, growth factors uh, within the central nervous system, and um, there are there are some studies that suggest that. And so, exercise in moderation is what we usually tell people, um, and that could be different for the person. And so, if you, to this person's question, if you're exercising and you get to a point where you're having extreme pain, that is really limiting your ability to exercise. Um, then what I would recommend is to look at your exercise routine um, and do one of two things. Uh, decrease the intensity of the actual exercise um, regimen um, and maybe do it more often, but at shorter intervals. Um, or, you know, some people will find that they can only go, they can go 10 to 15 minutes and really vigorously work out uh, and then, then they start having the discomfort, so then you do just a more intense program for shorter shorter periods of time. Um, but exercise certainly is is something that we advocate for our patients to do because uh, for individuals who have had uh, any type of neurological attack, um, we know that pain is not only coming from the neuropathic pain, but it also comes from immobility, from spasticity. And the old saying, if you don't use it, you lose it, is very, very true uh, when it comes to patients who have had uh, specifically transverse myelitis. So you want to keep as mobile as possible, but within reason. Uh, 
but the the old thought process of exercise causing more damage is, is not accurate. Um, in fact, you know, a moderate amount of exercise uh, seems to be beneficial. Great. On that same note, um, speaking of exercise, on the other end of the spectrum, is there a connection between fatigue and neuropathic pain? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could um, take this one, uh, and Dr. Santa can add to it. So in the, in the brain, there's an area um, that's very tightly correlated and tight, intimately connected between the pain receptors, depression, fatigue, and they all sort of work off of each other. And we, we will see and we'll hear from our patients uh, more often than not, if they are chronic pain sufferers, they will have an intense amount of fatigue that goes along with it that sometimes could be associated with depression, um, but many times it's not. And it just happens to be that the pain is driving some central process to provoke fatigue. Um, and what often will happen is people will get into this vicious cycle where they have a lot of pain. They're not exercising because it hurts when they exercise. They're less mobile. And over time, that creates more fatigue and more fatigable weakness and deconditioning. And so... You have, in some respect, you have to strike a, a balance between increasing one's activity, keeping mobile, maybe fighting through a little bit of pain, and then eventually, over time, the hope is that that vicious cycle breaks where it can lift up some of the fatigue, um, potentially some of the mood-related issues that can go with, with all of that as well. Um, and if that doesn't seem to be the case, because there is such a thing as uh, central, central fatigue uh, that may not be associated with uh, anything else but just uh, a relapsing condition, we see it oftentimes with MS, then there are medications that actually can help with fatigue specifically. Um, but, you know, they do seem to be connected. Um, and in my experience, a lot of times that's connected because of uh, not being able to exercise as much as one would want to do, um, and it just turns into that vicious cycle. Great. Yeah, Thank you, Dr. Newsom. Uh, we're about halfway through the podcast here, so I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and discuss more about the medications used to treat neuropathic pain. So, Dr. DeSena, would you mind... Um, uh, discussing the various medications for pain, a little bit of an overview, um, and how they might uh, benefit the patients. Sure. Um, so in, gen uh, in general, uh, there's various categories of medications that we uh, tend to uh, use uh, for neuropathic pain. And, and if I'm forgetting any, Dr. Newsom can certainly jump in um, at any point. Um, a lot of the initial medications that we use um, are uh, were initially used or are still used in some cases as um, seizure medications, and in a general from a general sense, how they uh, all work is that uh, they what they with, uh, as I would say they stabilize the neuronal membrane, and uh, and uh, in that way hope to 
uh, decrease the amount of firing that's uh, by the nerves that is helping to exacerbate the pain. Um, uh, that being said, uh, the, the main ones I probably uh, would initially start with uh, are a couple of the older medications, uh, Neurontin, also called gabapentin, uh, pregabalin, also called Lyrica, um, and um, carbamazepine, also called Tegretol. Uh, there's a couple others that we uh, often will go to as well, but probably those are the first three that we kind of consider in conjunction. Um, there's also an, uh, an older uh, medication that was initially used as an antidepressant that we sometimes tend to use just, as night, just at night called amitriptyline, also called Elevil. Um, and those four medications, I would say, I'm correcting myself now, uh, are probably the first medications we often use uh, for patients to have pain. Just like every individual case is different and the factors that are affecting one's pain are different, so too is everyone's response to different medication regimens uh, and um, uh, different dosages and different medications entirely. There are patients that certainly come in that we put them on one of those uh, three initial medications that I mentioned at a fairly low dose, and they have a beautiful sustained response uh, in, in terms of their, their pain improvement, where before they're having pain that they would rate as an 8 out of 10, and now it's almost gone, if not gone. Uh, and then there are patients that have uh, much more refractory pain syndromes. Uh, to Dr. Newsom's uh, extremely good point uh, about fatigue and uh, other, uh, other issues, other medical, ongoing medical issues, is it's striking a fine balance between adjusting any of these medications that we initially try and also sometimes working on other, those other factors. And I'm not trying to bring back the discussion to that, but I just um, want to mention that oftentimes we're working on several issues in addition to uh, titrating up the medications or down if it's not working and starting another medication in order to find strike the right uh, balance to make the patient uh, comfortable and allow them to do what they need to do and to continue to do what they need to do in their life, whether it be going to school, work, et cetera, taking care of their family. Um, those are uh, probably the probably the initial oral medications we try. In addition, sometimes uh, we have also tried um, uh, if patients have, there are certain patients that come in that have uh, very strictly defined areas of their body where they have pain that are very uh, are very small and localized. In in certain kinds of situations, this is not something we often do, but I would say we uh, do it on a fairly regular basis. Uh, we'll sometimes have compounded medications that have various components of uh, topical medications that can be mixed, and there's innumerable number of, of things that we've tried uh, to that can something that can be applied topically. Again, this is usually for areas that are just very small uh, and localized, where some patients we've had with TM have had areas that are just in one part of their back, maybe a uh, maybe a baseball or softball size in terms of diameter that's involved, they say it's just, in, it's just there. It's just right there. That's what bothers me. And in those kinds of situations, we have tried some topical medications um, that have various formulations with lidocaine, and sometimes they'll have topical formulations of the gabapentin and the neurontin, like I mentioned, and we'll mix and match some things. And um, uh, in those kinds of uh, medications, uh, there's uh, various concoctions that we've tried uh, it would have to be really a discussion between yourself and your neurologist about um, what you think, what they think might be appropriate or not. Um, 
the the reason why we would try in those situations to try something that's localized is if it's really just a small localized area, the oral medications, um, although in general they're very well tolerated, some patients can find them a little bit sedating. Uh, sometimes patients will say, I'm just, my thinking's on a sharper, I feel like a zombie, even though in all situations we try to start them out as, uh, at a very low dose and we tighten them up, uh, up slowly uh, to see how they tolerate it. Uh, in addition, like I previously mentioned, we'll sometimes use that medication called amitriptyline or Elevil. And when we use that medication, because it's something that a lot of the patients may, may or may not have heard of, um, oftentimes we want, uh, uh, we, our goal is to have the patient on that medication for at least a couple months, uh, if not at least several weeks, the very, very minimum, to see if they get any benefit. When we use that medication, oftentimes we want to see how their, uh, how their pain is responding over a period of a couple months before we say, okay, it's not working, before we try something else. And oftentimes we'll try that in relation, uh, in addition to other medications, or sometimes one at a time. It can be very individualized, mainly because every patient has an individual problem, and you can have two patients that had transverse myelitis, and they had their lesion basically in the same spot in their spinal cord, and they can have one patient can have no pain, and the other patient can have extremely refractory pain that's refractory to a lot of medications. And so every patient is different. In that respect, we try to uh, individualize our therapy. But I would say those probably medications are probably the um, the first go-to ones that we use. Yeah, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to add to that. Uh, that was that was great. Um, the the one thing that I think is the most challenging part is to diff- try to sort out where where is the pain coming from. Um, Occasionally, we'll get hints from the history, uh, for example, with neuropathic pain, you know, hey, doc, I have a burning foot. You have a good idea that that's probably a neuropathic pain uh, syndrome. But then there are other other pain syndromes like chronic musculoskeletal pain uh, that can come from, you know, uh, poor gait mechanics, poor seating in a wheelchair that sometimes at first glance may seem like it's neuropathic in origin, but it's actually not. Um, and it's more uh, musculoskeletal in origin. And the treatments are, are uh, different, you know, between neuropathic, treating neuropathic pain and musculoskeletal discomfort. Um, and so we, we will often try to be mindful of that not every person that comes to the door, you know, it's neuropathic pain. We have to look at other things that are causing pain because the treatments could be different, um, including, you, you know, you may increase your physical and occupational therapy efforts to help with uh, the musculoskeletal pain. Um, there are uh, individuals that will uh, get involved in uh, other uh, non-pharmacological interventions, whether it be acupuncture, massage therapy. Um, and uh, like I mentioned before, pain syndromes after a central nervous system attack most often will need a combination of therapies. Um, but to Dr. DeSanna's point, um, when we start a, a medication for a pain syndrome, we will often try one medication first, start at a very low dose, and then ga- you know, gradually titrate that to effect. Um, and the reason being that not everyone is the same. And, every, and 